1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, just a little bit of uh, recap. We've been in 1 Corinthians now for several months. And, and I want to just kind of make sure that we, we're on the same page regarding the book. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church um, in Corinth. He's writing from the city of Ephesus. Um, he's about three years removed from planting a church in Corinth, where he had spent about 18 months, one of his longer stays. And so he's writing a letter back to a church that he knows well. He knows the people, he knows the issues, he knows the relationships. And, and there's been some back and forth with him, other letters, uh, folks that have traveled to see Paul that are bringing reports, um, like Chloe and her people. And so we've seen a lot of back and forth, and, and Paul is really just expressing pastoral care for the church in Corinth. Um, knowing that Corinth is a growing, vibrant city. It's, it's a port city. It sits on an isthmus, which means it's, on a, it's got a port on both sides of it. And in that, um, all the, the traditions, the, the cults, the religions of the world have ended up in Corinth. There's a chance for economic advancement. So people have the ability to make money. Um, it's it's a, got an independent streak to it. And so Paul is writing, saying, look, church, we're not going to build a temple in Corinth. Right, we're not going to build this elaborate thing and say that is the temple, that's the shrine to the Most High God. He says, like, that's, it's us. That if people are going to know who God is in Corinth, it's going to be through our lives and through our witness and through our testimony, and that we're going to rightly reflect the character of God to the city of Corinth. It's the same call that we have today in our communities, that we are to rightly reflect the character of God. The issue is, church in Corinth isn't doing this very well. And so there's 10 or 11 kind of behavioral issues that Paul has been addressing as we've walked throughout this letter. Um, we're now looking at a section that is primarily on worship. He is, he's addressed, hey, we can't go back to idol worship. It's not that I don't want you just to go worship idols. You know not to do that. But I don't want you to go to these like community meals that are celebrating idols. Because he's like, that looks like you're affirming that. And so he's, he's helping them to kind of look at what worship is. In chapter 12, he said, look, there are many different gifts and many different manifestations of, of how God's going to work and use us. Chapter 13 last week, one that you often think of in weddings, we see him saying, look, in all that we do as the church, it's got to be about love, that we are to emulate the love that God has for us, and that is a love that the world doesn't often notice or see. Now, in chapter 14 this morning, we're going to enter probably the most controversial chapter in all of 1 Corinthians. Um, so you're welcome, right? Um, and, and, and we're just going to kind of have to, to wade into it. Um, this morning, I would just ask that we would, would lay assumptions down based on your denominational preference or tradition, your upbringing. You may find yourself excited in the, the thought of talking about prophecy and gifts and tongues, and you're like, it's about time, right? Others are thinking, where's the door, right? Like, you're like, I, I want to get out of here. Um, this makes me uncomfortable. And, and I think often what we do is that we tend to read these passages through our own filters of our own upbringing, our own experience, our own denominational backgrounds. And so this morning, if the Spirit would so allow us that we could just kind of lay that down and let the, the, the text speak for itself, whichever side that you're on. If it's that you're thinking, yeah, you, you crazy charismatics need to tone it down, right? Or if it's you going, yeah, you people that don't have any gift of the Spirit, like, right? Like, whatever side of it that you're on, that we would wrestle with this text and let it speak. 
Um, I do want to just give one uh, encouragement, because I think if we're going to lean one side or the other, it would, it would definitely be towards where, where there's some fear or some timidity, that we are a people who believe that like, our, our faith is supernatural, right? Like, that this morning, I'm not going to stand up here and, like, in my winsomeness, like, twist your arm into believing. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that in my own children. I can't do that in you. No, no speaker, no preacher, no pastor can do that. That we believe that salvation is a supernatural act of a good God who loves us and who pursues us and who rescues us. Like that we believe that, that this morning that we would ask God to meet with us, right? Like that's a supernatural request of saying, God who sits on the throne in heaven, would you meet with your people? That we want your spirit to be present among us, right? That that we pray for healing, right? We we have folks right now at Redeemer who we love, who who are suffering, that we're praying for healing, right? That is a supernatural act. And whether it happens through modern medicine or whether it's a divine touch, right? Like that we want and ask God to do that. We pray for peace. We pray for God's intervention. We pray for salvations. We believe a book of miracles, right? And, And like we say that, yes, we agree with that, So we are a supernatural believing people. And so if you have some timidity this morning, would you you balance it with that? That's kind of just who we are. All right. Let's begin. We're going to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Um, We are not going to finish chapter 14 this morning. We'll spend at least a couple weeks, potentially a little more than that, in chapter 14. So let's begin. Paul says, Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, 
Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All right, so I know that's a mouthful. Um, Here's the scene. In Corinth, what's going on is that tongues have become a divisive issue. The tongues are being seen as kind of the spiritual gift. And so folks are speaking in tongues in the service, and it's causing a distraction that others, they're saying, look, we're superior to you who don't speak in tongues. That this has become an issue of worship, that worship is becoming uh, chaotic. It's not orderly at all, and it's not beneficial. And that they're saying, like, hey, it's really the only manifestation. If you're not doing this, then you're not walking in the Spirit. And so Paul is looking to bring some correction to the church. He's looking to say, look, we've, we've got to, he's already done this with the Lord's Supper, right? Where he said, the way you're doing the Lord's Supper is inappropriate. We've got to fix some things. Now he's doing this in regards to worship service um, and, and tongues, prophecy specifically. Um, as we start, we need, we need to just kind of give credence to the fact that there are two kind of primary theological like veins that run from this passage. Okay, from this section of 1 Corinthians. One is called cessationism, and to mean like it ceased, it stopped. That there are those um, in, in Christendom who are believers. We're going to say that both of these stances, true believers, land in both, all right? That, that cessationists would say that these ceased with the apostles, that any sort of spiritual gifts or signs stopped when capital A apostles, those who walked with Jesus, who saw him in resurrection, who, who wrote Scripture, when it ceased, the spiritual gifts ceased with them. That at the close of the canon, which means the close of Scripture, that all of these signs, wonders, and miracles stopped. Most that would land in this camp who are cessationists would say, of course God is able. And so he may occasionally, by his hand, bring about healing. He may do some miraculous things because he's able to do that. But it's not the norm, and we shouldn't expect it. The, the, where this group often is going to stand is a really healthy place because what they're going to say is, because we're concerned with the, the Word of God that we don't want someone to, to come against it and to claim revelation that would like supersede it or that would take away from it. And so there would be some fear of that. And, and so they're standing on sola scriptura, like by, by, by the word alone. Um, even though there are those like Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor who would be a cessationist, and he would talk though, not of prophecy, but he would have impressions. Or he would say, I would know someone's sin. <laughs> And so he, he would say, I think the gifts cease, and yet I would still get impressions. And so there's, in this camp, there's a little bit of like, we're, we're uncomfortable with it, but we still think God works in this way a little bit, but we don't want to call it normative, okay? The second group are the continuist, right? Pretty, pretty matter of fact in what they believe here, the gifts continue, right? The, 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 the end of the, the, the scriptures coming together, the apostles going away, the gifts continue, 
And so this group would, for the most part, say, look, there are no capital A apostles anymore. We don't have folks who, who walked with Jesus, who saw him in his resurrected form. We don't have those who are writing Scripture any longer. The Scripture is closed, and yet the gifts would continue. Here's where the disagreement comes. If you look back in chapter 13, in verse um, 10, Paul is talking about love, and he says this, When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he goes on, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the question that these two groups land on is they disagree on what it means to know fully. And so the cessationists would say, in Scripture, we can know fully. We need nothing further. A continuationist is going to say what Paul is talking about is when Jesus steps back into human history, when he comes back in, we will see him fully and we will have no need for preaching any longer. We'll have no need for prophecy any longer. We'll have no need for any of the gifts because the word will be with us. Like in the flesh, we will be with Christ. And so it it seems, and where we're going to go this morning is it seems most by the text that what Paul is talking about is that the, the end, when the perfect ends, or when the perfect comes, is when Christ returns. And then it seems that the gifts would continue. But I want to say this. There is room for disagreement here. There, there is, there's a spectrum here, and this is not an issue to divide over. That on both sides of the aisle on this are believers. That this is not an issue of sal- salvation. This is not an issue of how we view Jesus. It is simply an issue of what does the church look like and what should the church expect moving forward um, until the Lord returns. And so that's why I want us to wrestle with this, to talk about it, to continue it. This is a new conversation for many of us. Um, One of the reasons a continuist would say this is there is no definitive teaching that says that the gifts stop. There are some places where we can maybe allude to that, but there's no definitive teaching. Um, That being said, the Scripture is closed, Right? There is no revelation that supersedes it. There's nothing like Scripture is it. It's done and it's over with. And so any, anything that we want to talk about in regards to spiritual gifts has to be understood through the filter and the, like the bedrock of our faith, which is Scripture. So let's look at tongues here. Paul begins to just give some, some insight into, into tongues. Verse 2 He says, look, the one who speaks in tongue is not speaking to you. It's not speaking to one another. He's speaking to God. All right? And so that's going to be key because he's going to contrast these, and he's ultimately going to say, look, I want prophecy over tongues. Verse 4 will tell us that the one who speaks in tongue is not building up one another. He's building up himself. Right? The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So he speaks to God, not to men. He's building up himself. Verse 5 says, look, and so you don't really want to do it publicly unless there's interpreter. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So remember, what has Paul been arguing through this whole letter is for one another, right? Like not to be individuals. And so this morning, our worship service is not about you and the Lord solely. It is about us. 
It is about us together coming before the Lord. And so it is not a hundred plus individual experiences. It is us coming before God together as a family. So that's why he talks about love. It's why he talks about these, that we are serving one another. That the body is not just preachers. It's not just singers. It's all the gifts ministering to one another. And that no one has all of what we need. That we need each other. We are independent. Sorry, we are dependent upon each other. Paul claims then in verse 6, so brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues. So Paul's already said, look, I speak in tongues more than all of you, right? Because the, the accusation that they had made was that he was discounting the tongues. And he's saying, look, I do it. And I do it more than you, right? He can say that because he's an apostle, right? But he says in verse 6, look, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how does it benefit you? The, the, the rhetorical question here is, it doesn't. Unless... I bring revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Because what he's saying is, look, I'm speaking to God, not to you. I'm building up myself, not you. And so the tongues are for my personal edification as I worship the Lord. It doesn't really help you unless someone's interpreting it. So there has to be teaching or revelation or prophecy or interpretation. Otherwise, be quiet. So the focus here is on public worship, one another loving and building up, that it's not private, that we're together, that Paul has said, look, I speak in these, but look at verse 19. He says in 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000. The word here is a myriad, like with all the words in tongues. Because he's saying once, when we're together, the point is that we're building up the body, that we're building up the family of faith to understanding. And if I'm speaking something that's unintelligible, that's not building you up. So notice he's not discrediting this. He's just saying it has its proper place and its proper timing. And without interpretation, it's not here. It's not. It's, he told us in chapter 12 that the tongues are not the only manifestation of the Spirit. So it's one that seems a little more unique as it comes out. But he's saying, look, hospitality, service, teaching, all of these are manifestations of the Spirit because we are showing the character of God. We are loving as Christ loved. And that if we do the spiritual gifts without love, then we're a clanging gong, right? Like, we're not bringing people to faith. We're not encouraging them. We're actually leading them away because our behavior is so abhorrent to the character of God because we lack love. Remember at the end of chapter 12, he tells us not everyone's going to do this. And so the call for all to do it is inappropriate, Right? He says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Right? He says, like, look, some will have these things, but not all. Not all will. Look now, he gives three analogies beginning in verse 7. So he says, even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp aren't given distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So the idea is, is I could sit behind this drum set or grab a guitar and I can make noise, but if I don't have the skill to bring about the proper sound, it's not pleasant for any of you, right? It's simply noise. So he's saying, look, tongues without interpretation are just noise. They're good for you, but not for anybody else. He then goes on to talk about a bugle. 
if in verse 9, or sorry, verse 8, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So a bugle in this day would not have had any, th- any way to make notes. It was through your sound you would make a noise. And so there were sounds for charge, right? Get after it. There were sounds, bugle sounds for retreat, pull back, for muster, like to come together. So he's saying if someone just gets on the bugle and just, you know, blows and it's indistinct, soldiers who are trained to know what to listen for will not respond. And so if he's trying to say charge and no one charges, that's a problem. If he's trying to say retreat, no one retreats, that's a problem. He's like, it has to have distinct sound or no one will listen to it. Again, he's talking about tongues. If there's not interpretation, then it's, then it's no good to anyone else. It's only good for you. And so he's not discrediting the good for you, but he's saying this isn't the time or the place for it. The third one is this. He talks about foreign languages. How many of you have been in that situation, right, where you're looking at someone who doesn't speak the language of you and you don't speak it with them? And right, and so you both get loud for a little while. Then you realize that doesn't work, and so then you go through the motions of pantomiming, right? So when we were in Yemen, Carmen crushed Arabic, right? She did such a good job. I did not. I was at the absolute bottom of the class. Like, they literally called on me at the end of like three or four hours because they knew I would butcher it so bad that everyone else could have a joke at my expense that I didn't understand, right? And so one day we're going out and we go to get in a taxi. Carmen's with me. We're in a patriarchal society. Dude always sits in the front. Carmen's in the back. We sit down and he goes, where do you want to go? So in Arabic, I tell him where our house is. And he just shakes his head. I don't speak English. If I say back in Arabic, I'm not speaking English. I'm speaking Arabic. And he goes, I don't speak English, sir. So I say back, I'm not speaking English, right? Like, I'm speaking Arabic. So I'm getting frustrated. He's getting frustrated. He's just looking at me like, you idiot, you know? And I'm going, I'm speaking Arabic. Like, not well, but I'm trying. And he turns and looks at Carmen like, help me out. She says the literal exact phrase that I just said in Arabic. He goes, wonderful, let's go there. <laughs> right? Right, like the, the distinction of her pronunciation mattered far more than I wanted it to matter, right? That he didn't understand bad Arabic, right? He just hadn't heard enough of it. Carmen's Arabic sounded better, so he took us exactly where we wanted to go. This is what Paul's talking about, right? That if there is, if there is clarity, if there's understanding, if we can hear it, right? It, it's why we, right, we, we preach, because we're, we're explaining the text for understanding so that we would see and revel and glory in the resurrected Christ that we have who has died on our behalf, right? Lived the life we were supposed to and has satisfied the wrath of God. And so if what I'm saying is unintelligible, it is not for your benefit. If I'm up here just doing a really, really poor job and it, you can't follow it, it's not for your benefit. So Paul is saying, look, these, the, the tongues, he is not discounting or discrediting them. He's simply saying they have their proper place and their proper time, especially if there is not interpretation. So he goes on in uh, verse Verse 20, uh, in verse 20, he says, So brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. What he means is be innocent in regards to evil. But in your thinking, be mature. He's saying think, right? Think clearly. 
In the law it is written, and he quotes now from Isaiah 28, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even though they will not listen to me, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So here's what he's saying. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah has been prophesying, hey, um, you got to listen to the Lord. Like, we're not doing well. And if we don't turn to him and repent, we're going to be destroyed. And they're like, man, your message is too simple. It's like for babies. We don't, we don't like your message. It's, we don't want it. And so Assyria takes them over. What Isaiah was prophesying and what Paul is referring to here is, you did not listen to the clear message, so now there will be those speaking above you in unintelligible sounds because they will now own you. And he's saying, right, like, so you will now, a judgment of the Lord is that you're not going to understand those over you. So here's what he, why he's saying this. So he goes on. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Saying, so like, it's, it's a sign of power. It's a sign of like God's presence and his influence. But he's also saying it was a sign for those who did not believe Isaiah's message. They were not believers, And so what was the sign for them? That judgment came, and it was in unintelligible speech as they were now not Israel, but they were Israel with Assyria over them. And that process continued over and over again with other nations. And he's saying, look, the the, the sign of tongues is the same. It's going to be for unbelievers to hear it and to recognize that God is working and that he's doing something here. All right, let's move on to prophecy for just a second. In contrast to tongues, where tongues were, it was speaking to to God and not men. Look at verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and for their encouragement and their consolation. So not only is he not speaking to God, it's speaking to one another. And it's not just building up yourself, it's building up the church. So that's why Paul would say he prefers it. Verse 5. Now I want you to speak in tongues even though we know not all will, but even more to prophesy because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues because the church is built up. Verse 24 and 25 let us know that prophecy actually brings conviction. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters and is convicted, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, which is what we want, right? We want to see that God is among us and that he is worthy of worship. So, if you have much of a church upbringing at all, you've got some like yellow flags, red flags in your head right now because you're thinking, wait a second, prophecy, right? Because in the Old Testament, right, prophecy was if you're wrong, you die, right? So we see this. Look in Deuteronomy 18. This is beginning in verse 19. Um, Sorry, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know that this is a word that the Lord hasn't spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. So, in the Old Testament, prophecy was 100% or you die. 
right? That, that, that was it. Like, you either are or you aren't. Because you are saying, thus saith the Lord. It's why the apostles, when they, right, it's, they're saying, thus saith the Lord, and Scripture emerged from it. What we are saying, that, that, that New Testament prophecy and what Paul is referring to is not Scripture-inducing prophecy. You are not claiming, thus saith the Lord. You're not saying that. What you are do- and how do we know this, right? How do we know this? Because if we look down at verse 29, look at how, what Paul says. Let two or three prophets speak, which we'll get to next week, and let others weigh what is said. And if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, I know we're jumping over around a little bit. Listen to this in verse 19. Don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So do you hear what Paul's saying? He's like, if someone prophesies, test it. Weigh it. Compare it to Scripture. So he's not saying, hey, we're creating Scripture. We're speaking above Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate. It, it is the filter that we use. So, what is, so he's not speaking of Old Testament prophecy because he's saying it needs assessment. If you think about Old Testament prophecy, you also tend to think of judgment and harshness and punishment. We see Jeremiah talk about that that's what his ministry is going to be in, in chapter 1, verse 10. But verse 3 here of chapter 14 says what? That prophecy is for the upbuilding and the encouragement and consolation. So here's what it is, right? What Paul is describing as prophecy is not Old Testament prophecy. He is talking about a new thing where it is a, a, a spontaneous word, right, that is meant for another believer usually that's not at the level of Scripture, which means it can be fallible, like that you can misunderstand it and you can misinterpret it. And that's why it has to be assessed and tested. And while we take it back to the Word, and, it, and so if it disagrees with Scripture, it's wrong. It is wrong. Let me give you an example of, of maybe what this could look like. Um, in the late summer of 2010, I was actually at camp. I was a student minister at camp with a bunch of students um, from a church I used to work at. And Carmen and I, for almost a year, had been contemplating, praying, considering the idea of a church plant and just thought it was crazy. And so we had not shared it with anyone at that point, like literally not anyone. And I got a phone call, like standing at camp with our students on UNT's campus, and this guy who I'd only met like twice before, didn't really know him, he's super nervous on the phone, and he simply says, dude, you're going to laugh me off the phone, but I, I have to tell you this. The Lord has like just impressed upon me that I think you're supposed to maybe plant a church in Pampa. And so he's like waiting, you know, like for that, like, oh no, like I've never done this before. This is going to end. And I just said, really? That's interesting. Because I've kind of felt impressed upon the Lord to consider that. And then I hung up, right? Like, I mean, that was it. And what that was was kind of like the two-handed shove of the Holy Spirit for me to say, I at least have to like consider this. And so we opened up the conversation with others, and we asked for counsel and for wisdom. Here's what didn't happen. He did not say, you're going to plant a church in Pampa, and it's going to work. He said, I I think you're supposed to maybe pursue the Lord in this. That wasn't, he didn't quote, right, here's the verse. He simply said, the Lord is impressed upon me. 
So the difference is, is it's not thus saith the Lord. It's more of like, hey, I, I felt impressed upon, right? And so it's, it's different. Well, we were in the Middle East. What we saw were Yemenis having dreams and having visions that would lead them to truth. And so often what would happen is we had a gentleman that, that we knew about in a neighboring country, and he had a dream that he walked into a, book, a bookstore that he was aware of and that he was supposed to grab a green book. That's all that happened in the dream. So he walks in this, he goes the next day and is like, right, he walks in this bookstore and he's looking around and there's no green books. And then finally over here in the corner, oh, there's a green book. So he pulls it off, doesn't even look at it, just is like, it's the only green book I see, buys it. And as he's walking home, he opens it up. And he had just been in a, a Quranic bookstore and it was a New Testament. Right? Goes home, reads through the New Testament, becomes a believer. Right? And so it wasn't that the dream was this prophetic thing that saved him. The dream led him to truth, which was Scripture that saved him. In my, my situation, it wasn't that, that I, we didn't plant a church because of that prophecy, but it, it encouraged us to pursue it, to see if Scripture would affirm it, would other godly people affirm it. So what we're saying here is this is not, thus saith the Lord, but we're saying that the Lord gives guidance, and He gives impression, and sometimes He gives that to someone else for your benefit. Right? And that's why this is intelligible, it's understandable, but it needs to be assessed and filtered and tested. Um, Notice what he says in verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, so he's saying, look, if this is happening in the service and an unbeliever or an outsider enters and he is convicted by what he's heard, right? He's a call to count by all. Listen to what it says. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So he's saying that someone knew his sin. And Spurgeon, who is not a continuationist, would say that he, this happened to him, that he would know the secret sins of someone, and he would call them on it, and they would confess and repent and trust the Lord, because they would know that they were known, right? That they were known by a holy God who is a living and moving and working. Um, okay, I debated whether, I'm going to share one more. Um, about a year into Redeemer, um, it's about 40 of us meeting and we're in this building, had only been in this building for like a couple weeks. And on a Wednesday night, I was sitting right over there by the sound booth with about seven students. Um, and it's like Wednesday night, it was dark. And this woman is like walking down the street right here. She walks past us, and then she comes back, she opens up the door, and she goes, hey, I need to talk to the pastor. Which, we weren't even really meeting. Like, there weren't people here. I happened to be here. And so I walk over, and, and like she just stops me and says, I just have something to tell you, and then I'm going to leave. So okay. And she goes, the Lord is pleased with what's happening here. And she said, and, and the Lord is going to continue to bless it. And then she turned around and like started, I'm like, whoa, 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 like wait, I'd like to talk to you for a second, right? And she didn't, like she shared a little bit more, but she left, and she was gone. And I'm like, what do I do with that? But here was the thing. Right, she, she said, like, the Lord's going to, like, pour out and, and like, that this building won't be able to contain it. And she said, so here's the thing. I haven't shared that a lot, right? I don't know if I've ever shared it really beyond a couple individual conversations. Because here's the thing. Whether that happens or not, I'm okay. Because the, there was encouragement there. There was a building up of, like, the Lord's simply pleased. 
right? So whether the, the, the great, grandiose aspect of that happens or not, I don't need that. What I, was, I was encouraged that night. She just said, the Lord wanted me to tell you he's pleased. She didn't know me. She didn't know this place. She'd never been here. Has still never been here. And so, you see what I'm saying? Like, she didn't come in and say, thus saith the Lord. Redeemer will one day be, like, she simply said, hey, man, God's pleased with what you're doing. Keep at it. Right? And so, that's what Paul is talking about. On the other hand, the one who prophesies this people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. We're not up here doom and gloom prophesying, Right? Attacks are coming, and this is happening. It's for the upbuilding, the encouragement, and the consolation. All right. A couple thoughts to end this. Um, I don't in any way anticipate that this conversation is, is sufficient, okay? Which is, we're going to be in chapter 14 next week. We want to continue it. We want to wrestle with it. The focus of what Paul's talking about, though, is that what happens in the worship service has to be understandable, it has to be for the building up of one another. We have to want God, right? We want God. But if we're honest, those of us who this morning are uncomfortable with this text, we also want control. And what God is saying is some of this is beyond our control, right? And so we're like, God, I can control this a little bit because I can preach what I want to preach. And when he starts doing stuff outside, I'm like, right? Getting a little un- uneasy, but we, we want God to work and we move and we would agree that he's done this before. He says to earnestly desire. He ends that but in verse 31 of chapter 12. He begins chapter 14 with that, to earnestly desire that. That just means to pursue, to study, to pray, to understand. So if you're confused, if you're wrestling with this, read through chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, asking for the Spirit to guide you, to give understanding. Let's continue the conversation. Here's where one of the biggest concerns is going to be. This area of Scripture gets abused to a mind-blowing level. It gets manipulated. We have people teaching, all right, we're all going to learn to speak in tongues this morning. Insanity, right? We can't do that because he says we're not all going to do it. Right? It gets manipulated and abused. But here's the thing. There are also false teachers who abuse the teaching of Scripture. And we don't then give up gospel preaching. There are people who have mismanaged funds and misappropriated um, things in church administration, which is a gift of the Spirit. And we don't say, well, I can never give to a church again. Right? That we see abuse and manipulation of gifts, and we look for course correction and gospel truth and gospel parameters. And we say we have to walk in that with our giving and with our administration, with our teaching. And we call false teachers false teachers when we see them. So we don't then throw the baby out with the bathwater here and say, because people have misused this and abused it and manipulated it, it doesn't exist. Right? We have to, we have to, and, and look, that's not, my upbringing was, you toss it out. You don't consider it. It's just done. So I, I'm a learner in this with you. Church, would we be reminded this morning, even if you're a little uneasy, that it is an honor to live in these days post-resurrection where the Spirit resides and dwells among us. If you read through the Psalms, you read through much of the Old Testament, people are saying, don't take your Spirit from me. I've had it for a little bit, don't take it from me. Right? They longed for a day where the new covenant would come, and you could say, you wouldn't have to say any longer to your brother or sister, know God, but they can know God because the Spirit of God would dwell within them. Church, we live in these days. 
right? Like that we have the, the benefit and the gift of the Spirit among us to minister, to encourage, to comfort, that He would use us to do that as well. And church, the final thing this morning is this. We can talk about this because Jesus lives, right? If he's alive, that's the whole book of Acts, right? That Jesus really isn't mentioned after chapter 1 is like a, a character in it, but the whole book of Acts is driven by him, that he is working and moving and maneuvering in the book, revealing himself and drawing people to himself because he is faithful and he is alive. Church, he's alive this morning. And these graces, which, right, that encouragement that woman gave me was an evidence that that God knows me, that he loves me. Just a way of saying, hey, it's going to be hard, but keep at it. Who wouldn't want that? Right, like if we can encourage one another, if it can be a reminder that God is with us, that he is for us, that he is present, and and that we are known and loved, Scripture does that. And he says, and sometimes he gives those of us to do it for one another as well, to remind us of the truth that we already know in Scripture. So church, um, only thing I would ask this morning is this, man, don't run from this, right? You can disagree. It's okay, right? You, you can land in a different theological camp on this, and we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's, let's enter into just an honest look at, at Scripture. We're going to finish chapter 14 next week. We may spend another week in it, just kind of continuing to look at the nuance of it. Um, and let's trust that we are a supernatural people because we have a God who's coming back for us. So would we worship Him in spirit and in truth this morning? Let me pray for us.